Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. As Israel's war with Hamas has continued week after week and now month after month, the world has watched in horror as the number of Palestinian civilians in Gaza killed has climbed into the thousands and now the tens of thousands. The numbers reached a tragic benchmark recently with an estimated 20,000 deaths. The arguments over the exact numbers are ongoing. The two sides fight over the overall death count, how many of those killed are civilians, and the exact extent of the humanitarian crisis leading to even more death. But the level of killing, of death, of hunger, of overall human suffering in Gaza is undeniable, even to those who justify Israel's war as one that it has no choice but to continue to wage full force. My guest this week on the podcast is a journalist here at Haaretz who faces a challenging task, covering what is happening on the ground in Gaza for an Israeli newspaper and website writing in Hebrew. Shireen Farah Saab, when the world is calmer, writes about cultural affairs in the Arab world. But since this war began, she has been writing daily about the toll that the war is taking on Gaza, along with its implications for the Arab world and the Arab citizens of Israel, Christians, Druze, and Muslims. I say that she writes in Hebrew, but of course, all of her work appears in translation in our English edition as well. Hi, Shireen, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, Alison, thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. So, Shireen, I look at the scale of what's happening to the millions of civilians in Gaza, and I look at where you sit, and I have to start by asking you as a journalist, what is it like for you to cover Gaza from Israel? How do you approach covering such an overwhelming story from afar when you can't go there, you can't talk to people face-to-face like you do when you cover stories here? Can you talk to me a bit about what your sources of information are, what you do when you wake up in the morning, how are you able to verify your information, and how you pick and choose what to write about? You know, in ideal condition, and the right thing to do is to be there in Gaza. As a journalist, it's very important to to be physically there and walking in the streets of Gaza, visiting the refugees camp in Rafah and simply just observing uh, closely how the world changed the people in Gaza. And, you know, I understand the value of being there every day and talking to the people, check every day what's happening there. And unfortunately, I don't have this opportunity. But what I'm doing uh, right now, I bridge the gap about all the stories by my friends who live in Gaza. And I have a uh, previous knowledge and uh, familiarity with Gaza citizens. My, my relationship uh, with Gaza didn't start uh, with the current war. I have Gazan friends. Some of them also uh, live uh, outside of Gaza. So I met them before. I, I, I know Everything in Gaza, you know, the cities and the locations, uh, and we're constantly talking and in touch. So in this situation, my heart is currently is divided into halves, half of half in Israel and half in Gaza. You know, some of them also telling me and updating me uh, what is happening in life. You know, some of them displaced from the north of Gaza. And I received the reports f- from them as much as possible in the real time. And, you know, it's very frustrating for me because I see the suffering. I hear them. I talk to them 
every day. You know, there are also communication difficulties, of course, especially in the north of Gaza Strip. In the south and the center, there is uh, sometimes uh, occasional falls, and it takes uh, sometimes uh, two days to receive a message from Gaza. And it's really uh, nerve-wracking because there's also fears for the what's happening there. Are they are killed or not? So uh, it's not easy. Your last big piece that ran on Haaretz's front page in the weekend newspaper is headlined, The Teacher, the Toddler, the Social Worker. In Gaza, 20,000 have been killed. Uh, your story opens by quoting a 31-year-old woman who says, quote, Gaza is like an open mass grave, whether it happens by bombing, because of disease or hunger, the only certain outcome is death. Is that reflective of what you hear from your friends, acquaintances uh, in Gaza? Definitely, definitely. And, you know, this is an excellent question because when I wrote this article and looking for stories, I think this is the hardest piece that I have had also in emotional levels because I had to go through the list of the dead people, make sure that they are really exist in the, you know, in the list of the uh, dead people, including uh, checking the, their IDs, cross also check information about them and, and them discovering more personal information about these dead people. Uh, suddenly their stories and personal details they are not longer personal. And I think dealing with the death and hearing about it every day in Gaza, you know, families, relatives of my friends, it's not easy. It's not easy because death of Palestinians in Gaza, unfortunately, it's a taboo subject in Israel right now. And I think just Aretz, uh, a newspaper, is uh, dealing with the, the, uh, these issues. I think the taboo that there's a general perce- perception in Israel that there's no innocent people in Gaza. And it's a challenge for me to explain and to bring the human perspective. And if you ask me how I decide or how I'll check the stories, if and if you mention in this piece especially, uh, there is... A, something common in all the stories, and not just in this piece, that there are uh, ordinary people just want to survive, and each one of them they have their uh, way to survive. For example, Jana Qadih, it's a, a young girl with a physical disabilities and cerebral palsy, and she died from hunger. It's not just that the, the, the reasons of death is different from Gaza. It's different in Gaza. It's not just bombings. We have also a humanitarian crisis. Shireen, I'd like you to just mention the three people in the headline of your story uh, to touch on each one and talk about why you chose them, why you focused on them and why you were able to use their individual stories maybe to represent the stories of thousands of other uh, people who were killed in the conflict. Let's start with the teacher, uh, Shahta al-Bahbani. Yes, uh, Shahta al-Bahbani is uh, uh, 73 years old. He's from Dar al-Balah. And um, when I tried to uh, cross-check information about him. I asked the, my friends about him. They told me he was a teacher and also uh, tried to help uh, poor students and they bring them uh, some books and notebooks. Uh, and suddenly these personal details, 
they are no longer personal details. You know, I'm trying also to bring a, the human perspective about a, a, the people. And Sheikh al-Bahbahani was with his family um, trying to uh, be in a safe space. And unfortunately, Israeli uh, bombed his uh, home and uh, some of the member families uh, killed, including Sheikh al-Bahbahani and his wife. So it's a sad story. Um, and it reflects a big story about how people in Gaza are uh, uh, being together during the war and uh, trying to be in a safe space together, all member families. The same thing with the toddler, right? Rabab, her name. She's uh, five years old. The same thing, you know, it's just a toddler and she killed also with the... Her brother in Rafah uh, in October, her father told uh, the story to the B'Tselem uh, organization. And it's important also to connect uh, and uh, to check the stories of uh, the Gazan uh, people with the other uh, human uh, rights organization. And you chose the social worker, uh, Mustafa Abed Al-Halim Fayed. Uh, to sort of stand in and, and, and represent all of the health workers and all of the uh, people who are trying to save other people and in the line of duty lose their own lives. Yes, Mustafa is a social uh, worker, but after uh, during the war, he uh, decided to volunteer at the uh, Red Crescent. Um, I asked um, a relative uh, of him and uh, he told me that he wants to feel an existent meaning during the war. You know, people have no work and some of them lost their relatives. So he tried to bring some happiness and hope to the children. And this is a tragedy that reflects also the price of war that uh, also, as you said, uh, medical staff uh, killed or they have to continue working uh, and they feel the duty to still serve uh, the Gazan uh, people during the war. But they are also killed. Now, in the Middle East, you know, I'm looking for a general also perspective that we have, we have known as severe wars in the past, the most notable being the civil war also in Syria. And something about the victims in Gaza and the current war between Israel and Hamas reminds me the suffering of the Syrians. Um, you know, in the end, they are human beings. And Hamas didn't ask the Gazans if they want the war or not. And it's, it's very, a very complicated situation. And I'm trying also to bring the human perspective about the uh, uh, victims. And um, I, it's impossible to continue with the approach that agrees with collect punishment for Gazans. And we saw the tragedy last week, uh, the story of the hostages who were killed by the IDF uh, fire. So this is reflects the complexity of uh, the war and the complicated situation in Gaza. Reflecting back on what is normally your beat, which is cultural affairs, um, you reported on the death of a Palestinian poet, Rafat Al-Aghir, who was something of a controversial, although admired figure um, in Gaza, I understand. Um, before you tell us about him, I'd like to play a clip of actor Brian Cox. He's the big star of the TV series Succession, and he is reading a poem that uh, Al-Aghir wrote. If I must die... You must live to tell my story, to sell my things, to buy a piece of cloth, 
and some strings. Make it white with a long tail, so that a child somewhere in Gaza, while looking heaven in the eye, awaiting his dad who left in a blaze and bid no one farewell, not even to his flesh, not even to himself, seize the kite, my kite you made flying up above, and thinks for a moment an angel is there bringing back love. If I must die, let it bring hope. Let it be a tale. Shirin, you wrote that part of that poem has become a, a catchphrase uh, for some uh, Gazan uh, protesters. Can you tell us a little bit about the poet and how he died? Rifat al-Arir, who died alongside several close uh, families members, uh, he wrote in English about uh, life in Gaza. He, he was uh, also a severe critic of Israel. Uh, but the interesting thing that he taught young Gazans to use their writings as a, a tool of Palestinian uh, resistance. And uh, one point that uh, also interesting that in the, during the war, uh, before he died, he was interviewed by uh, several media outlets in English, for example, CNN, and they, uh, he asked them if he died they, uh, to publish uh, uh, the last thing he told uh, the networks. Um, and he told them the familiar story that we are now now uh, about uh, the Gaza families. His message was uh, his father, brothers, sisters, and his own family all had to evacuate. And uh, they deliberated whether to stay together or to separate. So he just told his dilemma about uh, how to survive and if they have to die with with all of the family or just uh, at least uh, some of them will not die. So he died with his sister and uh, her kids and uh, the other families. They stayed in another place. Uh, he was a professor of English literature, also in the Islamic University of Gaza. Um, he was also founder of the initiative, uh, a project, We Are Not Numbers, which uh, collecting English language uh, short stories by young Gazans. You know, some of uh, his uh, students, his name is uh, Jihad Abu Salim, he's also a Gazan editor in English. Uh, he told uh, the Arab media that uh, for him, he was not just a teacher of English or professor. He was also a like a friend, mentor, someone who's really looked after his students beyond the classroom, and he just bring their his his uh, students to be a, a to bring them a tool, a, the, the English language, a, to to battle the academic and culture and intellectual a blockade in Gaza. Ironic that he spoke about not being a number and his death is, you know, in the this huge list of Gazans who have uh, who have died in, in this conflict. Yes. So, you know, in addition to telling the human stories, you're obviously a journalist at Haaretz. So you also discuss the issues and the, the controversial ones. You talk about some of these victims that you've written about and people that you know who died seeking safety in a situation that they thought was safe and 
one presumes everyone wants to stay safe. Nobody wants to die. There's this messaging war going on. Hamas and pro-Palestinian groups saying that Israel is deliberately targeting civilians at best or bombing indiscriminately at worst. And Israelis accusing Hamas of using the civilian population as human shields, deliberately putting them in harm's way. Can you talk about the issue of safety as the Gazans that you talk with describe it? And for example... In southern Gaza, Israeli forces were urging uh, Gazan civilians to flee the north at the beginning of the war. Go to the south. You'll be safe at the south. But now the offensive against Hamas leaders has moved south. And the Israeli spokespeople are saying, well, we're telling them where to go in the south where they can stay safe. What, what's the actual situation as you understand it from the people who are there? You know, it's a good question. And we, I have to answer it in two points. First of all, I agree that Hamas is the present throughout the densely population strip, and they really use uh, some of the people as human shields. And uh, the other hand, the Israeli army says it targets the terror group, not the civilians. But we know that the air force has dropped thousands of bombs uh, through the uh, enclave, including places that we are declared as safe zones, and not just both. Both Gazans and UN officials responsible in interacting uh, say that there's no safe place uh, for people in Gaza because you know Gaza is the I think the most pl- most crowded place in the Middle East and there's also more than a million people have been displayed from the north to the south to Khan Yunis you know at uh, until uh, October and the beginning of November Khan Yunis was a, apparently a safe place for Gazans who displayed to it. But right now, Israel also bombing there. So, you know, some of the people who displaced to Khan Yunis are trying to displace now to Rafah. So people have nowhere to go. Also, I should say that some of the families just decided not to evacuate to Rafah because there is also no place for them. They have no tents and the schools are overcrowded. And also the UNRWA center is crowded. And when the army announced and told them to, they will bomb the, a, a building or the home. So some of them evacuate and some of them, they just keep being in the same place because they just simply accept the death. Wow. You know, this is very sad. It sounds so fatalistic. Imagine being told that your building is going to be bombed and then deciding to stay there anyway. That sounds unimaginable. You know, they they have no no place. They have nothing to lose. They lost their families, their relatives, their works, their normal life. They they have nothing to lose. So they just prefer to be dead in their homes and not to lose their dignity. It's a very complicated situation. And I think that people who don't familiar with Gaza and the Strip uh, 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 and, uh, you know, the way that Gazan's people uh, also think. I don't think that they can understand the logic about uh, of their decisions. Something really terrible that you wrote um, that I saw is that, you know, the arguments over how many people have really been killed, um, we may never know because there's not even the means to uh, pull all of the bodies out from under the rubble that are there. 
you know, also in the end of the, the November, also the Israeli security forces provided uh, the estimate that uh, aligned with the figures from Gaza. And there are also two recent articles from the Lancet Medical Journal have expressed the confidence in the Gaza Health Minister numbers about uh, the killed people, some of them really in, uh, under the rubbles and some of them just uh, near the streets. It's a horrible situation when you see the bodies in the streets. Um, and I, I should say that at the beginning of the war, it was possible to, cr to track the number of the dead. And uh, there's a list including uh, their identity cards. There's a process in Gaza, Ministry of Health, where data is reported and recorded. But as the war progressed, some of the people who worked in uh, uh, collecting and recording uh, the, the, death, the, the number of deaths, they also, uh, some of them injured or killed. So the process is delayed and there's also difficulty to identify the bodies uh, and some of them defined as missing. You're writing here in Israel as a journalist in an atmosphere where Israelis are so still devastated by what happened on October 7th. They're so focused on their hostages in Gaza. They're losing soldiers, losing their sons, fathers, brothers, friends uh, every day. I mean, I see that even people on the left don't seem to have very much room in their hearts for the human tragedy that's happening on the Palestinian side uh, in Gaza. And you've also written about the flip side of the media coverage in the Arab world, the lack of an ability to empathize with the Israeli side, a lack of reporting um, at all on the atrocities that happened on October 7th and the hostages. Can you just share from where you're right in the middle of this, the, the seeming inability of the two sides to see the other's humanity? Uh, it's really a challenge to tell the stories in Hebrew. Uh, and I'm very happy that I'm working in arts and there is an inclusive environment and support uh, from the editors. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do it. You know, October 7 was also difficult for me. I can't understand the Israeli side. Uh, after all, also... Myself, I, I lost friends on October 7, and there's also hostages that I knew. And it makes the situation very complex, especially that some of the hostages are still there in Gaza. So I, I can't understand why some of the left uh, don't have uh, the room to, you know, to uh, uh, understand the Palestinian side. Uh, but on the other hand, my it's my professional duty to report what is happening on the other side in Gaza, especially in the humanitarian contest. As I said before, Hamas didn't ask the Gazans whether they want the war or not. And as the time goes by, I hear more and more criticism from Gazans people about Hamas. It does not say publicly, but there also a criticism about Hamas. I think that in the end, we are human beings. We're not just journalists. And and the, the war must not let this change, this aspect. And this is the principle that guides me uh, at work. And we have dead people in the both sides. On October 7, the horrible stories, the massacre, the rapes of uh, women. It's a very sad stories. 
but also we have dead people and sad stories in the Gaza side. And I think we have to report both of sides uh, as a journalist. This feeling of being caught in the middle of this conflict, you cover the Arab community here in Israel, Muslims, Christians, and uh, and Druze. It's complicated for, for the entire community, right? Uh, as you said, there were Arab citizens who were murdered and kidnapped by uh, by Hamas and many Druze soldiers in, in the IDF. Um, what do you see and hear? Uh, I mean, you are very focused on what's happening in Gaza, but what do you see and hear in the Arab communities in Israel? As you say, there is the uh, hostages also from the Bedouin Arab Negev, um, and there is also victims Palestinian. Uh, Suhaib Razim is a Palestinian uh, citizen from uh, the east of Jerusalem who also uh, killed on October seven. Uh, so it's very hard, and we can see the statement of a member of Knesset, Mansour Abbas. He was the first. Uh, person who uh, condemned Hamas and saying that it did not reflect the values of uh, Islam. A very important statement, for, I think, because it reflects the fabric of life in Israel between uh, Arabs and Jews. They're also members of uh, the Druze community who served in the army, some of them killed in the war uh, of Gaza. So I think people who don't live in Israel they cannot understand the, the, the fabric of life, you know. Uh, it's difficult to understand these complexities because they look at Israel in uh, black and white uh, colors. There is a very binary view. And I think the uh, story that touched me um, in the funeral uh, of our friend uh, Vivian Silver is a peace activist and uh, also killed in the October 7. Uh, one of the most important speeches was by a Muslim woman. Her name is Ghadir Hani. And when I heard his speech, I just cried because her words that she said shows that something that uh, people who live in the whole world don't understand, that Arabs and Jews together don't want to lose the you know, the sharing life and the partnership together. And she said that in his speech, that we deserve to live in a peace together. Can you talk about that among Arab citizens of Israel? I mean, on the left in general, but I would imagine, especially in the in the Arab communities, um, worries about freedom of expression and, you know, even among journalists, whether there's a fear of speaking out and showing sympathy for Gaza publicly or taking uh, any kind of nuanced or sympathetic uh, stand towards the Gazan population when the Israeli authorities are watching what everyone says closely, and you've got someone like the far-right uh, national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, directing the police and deciding what gets defined as incitement and dangerous speech? From the start of the war, we saw how people in the in, in Arab community were arrested, including uh, the famous singer, Palestinian singer from Nazareth, Dalal Abu Amni because she posted uh, uh, in her Instagram sympathies about uh, the Gazans uh, people. It's scary, and people start to self-censorship uh, themselves. I think in Israel, we have a process, I call it, ben-gver- ben-gverization. <laughs> 
when people just adopt the position of being veer, and it's very dangerous. I'm really worried about that because you know when I meet uh, um, Israeli people, they I, I just also experience this. They checking who you are and where you work. You're checking, uh, you know, your accent also, and you have to prove your loyalty to the country, you know. And some of people just prefer not to express their positions and remain silent. Um, it's it's a bad situation. Uh, the fact that uh, our people should uh, also deal with that. Just to finish off looping back to Gaza, and you say it's very hard for people outside Gaza to understand how people there think and feel. You know, to most of us or to many of us, we say, how can the Gazans not hate Hamas for what their October 7th attack has brought, has wrought on Gaza? And yet they seem to, as you say, some are having misgivings now and not everyone can speak out. But according to the polling numbers that we see, there's still a majority of people polled in Gaza believing that the October 7th attack was a correct one. Um only 17% of those polled uh, believe that Hamas committed any kind of war crimes, 97% that Israel um, committed war crimes. A very small majority did say they were satisfied with the performance of Hamas and the local Hamas leader, and only 21% supported Fatah or the Palestinian Authority as an alternative. I mean, isn't Israel's goal of ridding Gaza of Hamas at completely unachievable, even if it has the sweeping military victory it seeks? Like, how do you see a, a post-war Gaza forming or um, how people will think once Hamas is presuming that it someday will be no longer in control of the Strip? Um, first of all, Hamas, I should say, is an idea before being a terror organization. It's idea like ISIS also idea and also Taliban, Al-Qaeda is idea. Uh, all the terrorist organizations, including Hamas, are primarily based on radical ideas. And in order to really succeed in weakening Hamas, Israel needs, in my opinion, to offer a, a, to offer a suitable alternative to the Palestinians uh, in which they feel comfortable and injustice in it you know many of palestinians are really disappointed from uh, with the palestinian authority and its functioning and there's many reasons for this and uh, it's difficult to expand to expand it right now in this moment but you know people palestinian people also feel that the oslo accords haven't if they, they haven't succeed and there's no new reality and what we need right now, what Israel needs to think, not just the day after the war uh, by uh, rigiding uh, Gaza of Hamas, what opportunity they want to offer to, to the Palestinians. And I think it's difficult to determine now whether Israel will be succeed in doing this or not, because we're just in the middle of the war and uh, people are also changing their positions. And I think that uh, uh, the important thing uh, from this data that the Palestinians' conflict is very burning and Palestinian people looking for justice. And it's impossible to continue with the Netanyahu's conflict management policy. And we have to think about 
really is a real solution and justice also for the other side. Well, one way to continue to understand and follow what's going on in Gaza is to read your really, really high-quality stories. Luckily, um, they're all available in English on uh, haaretz.com. Shireen, good luck, as I said in the beginning of the podcast, is a very uh, challenging task, and I'm really grateful that you took the time to come on the podcast and talk to us about it. Thank you. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guest, Shirin Falah Saab, and to my producer and editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>